0: Good evening, thanks for having me here to speak to you. My name's Darren, I'm from, also from Engage Work Faith, I work there two days a week, um, and that is plenty for Craig, I think, any more of that, and we test our relationship, who knows. No, I love working with Craig and the team, and we get to challenge and inspire Christians about what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. Um, tonight I'm going to talk to you about mission from identity, how mission comes from identity. And the first point is pray. No, no, sorry, that's for me, I'm supposed to pray first. Let's pray and then we'll get into the Word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this chance to get into your Word. We thank you for the way it speaks to us. We thank you for the way it challenges us and schools us and we pray tonight we'd handle it faithfully. We pray that we would engage with it um, honestly and we pray that good would come up tonight as we meet together as your people and want to grow in love towards you and each other. We thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've misunderstood your identity, you will misunderstand your mission. If you don't know who you are, you will question what you're doing. I discovered that there are dozens and dozens of movies where the main character has an identity crisis due to amnesia. Have you ever noticed that? I looked online, you can even sort them alphabetically, you can take a pick, there's multiple in each letter. Uh, the one I stumbled across and I connect with is The Bourne Identity. I think this is a perfect example. Uh, so Jason Bourne, has everyone seen that movie? Am I allowed to do a spoiler alert on a movie that's like, is it 20 years old now? I don't know, I'm showing my age. But the, uh, the one with uh, Matt Damon is the one I'm talking about. And Matt Damon, playing Jason Bourne, is plucked out of the sea, unconscious, by fishermen, and he awakes to realise he can't recall his past. As the movie progresses, he rediscovers his rare and efficient skills in combat and surveillance. In the end, this process leads to him finding out his identity and his past. But, spoiler alert, he rejects all of it because he doesn't like it, and he no longer believes in the mission he was on. So his newfound sense of identity emerges in this story from his old one, and he sees life with new purpose And thus, starts a new mission, as it were. In the same way for you tonight, understanding of your mission comes from knowing who you are. I'm going to spend some time in the book of 1 Peter tonight, a letter from Peter to a scattered group of Christians. And the book of 1 Peter, in a nutshell, says you can know who you are so completely that even the strongest opposition and pressure won't shake you in that identity. The original readers of this letter actually faced intense opposition from day to day as they lived out that new identity as the people of God and this letter reassures them that their identity in Jesus is secure and their efforts to live in a way that reflects him will never be pointless and the reason is every circumstance of life is preparing them and us for our ultimate end, to be united as a people, a family who are to the praise of Jesus Christ at his return. So I love that our songs have centred around Jesus tonight, that's been a perfect introduction. So in discovering our identity, we stumble across the idea of new birth. We're going to be spending a little bit of time looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 and let me just read it to you and then we'll put it up on the screen just a moment as we get further into it but I'll read it to you to start with. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No behavioural or psychological training will result in you taking on this identity. Not even a harsh life of asceticism, of restricting the good things, the pleasurable moments in your life will do that. In the old days, that used to mean perhaps you would dwell in a cave away from everyone else so you would not be tempted to do anything bad. Perhaps it meant climbing a tall pole atop a platform and staying there for a long time so that no one could tempt you. These days, perhaps that means you delete all your social media for a week and that's the equivalent um, so that you can't be tempted. But what we discover, this is not effective because a lot of our issues, as much as we like to blame circumstances around us, we start to notice the issues come from us, from inside us. This is something that the earliest Christians, from the earliest days, understood of Christianity. They knew that no self-effort would ever change them from a darkness dweller, is what 1 Peter would call it, to a light seeker. They understood that only Jesus was equipped to transform them in this way. So now, we'll look at 1 Peter 1 verse 3 to 5 a little more closely And I think the whole crux of the letter is right here in these verses. And if we miss it right here, we might end up trying to live the rest of the contents of the letter, or perhaps rejecting the rest of the contents of the letter, because we see them as a set of moral codes to better ourselves. That's not the message of the letter. Nothing could be further from the truth. Praise be to God and the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Immediately, you might notice something big's going on here because the author, probably not in the original, but we're conveying the sense of the original, is there's a big exclamation mark there. Praise be to God! Peter writing starts with this this firecracker of a statement and he exclaims that all the praise must go to God as Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So already we're seeing that the, the central point of this message is based around Jesus and the Father. But before we get too far ahead, let's start with the problem. It's always a good place to start when you're trying to solve a problem and this problem is evidenced by death itself. As you move past that first exclamation point, you find out the cause for celebration. God's given humanity a gift and these readers originally, they were scattered Christians who had received this gift. In this one verse, we see all of life's problems and we also see the only true hope for their resolution. Let's begin with the problem by looking at the end of verse 3. That problem is death. Jesus faced death. Death is Death is our most repulsive reminder of our identity without God's rescuing works and death creeps up on us all. We decay as we age, eventually to die. Sorry if you came for good news tonight. There is good news coming though. We fight this with gym memberships, organic foods and more and more face creams. We fight even past the end. We hope that science will save us. It was 54 years ago, on January 12th, 1967, when a doctor, Dr. James Bedford, a psychology professor at University of California, he passed away due to kidney cancer at the age of 73. But what Mr. Bedford is known for the most is that on this date, he became the first person chronically preserved, frozen in time. And thanks to the Life Extension Society, his body is still being preserved. And according to the latest information, his body is still available for future for use by the scientific community. This hope of defeating death is based on unknown science. There's no evidence we'll be ever able to revive someone after cryogenic freezing. But, if you'd like to pin your hopes on this, I discovered you can now join those who are just chilling, waiting for science to rescue them, because last year in May 2020, there were 27 members, founding members, who each contributed 50 grand to build the Southern cryogenics warehouse and it's now in New South Wales, so if you don't mind New South Wales, the town of Holbrook houses or will house the new facility and according to this article I found you can join the post-death deep freeze for a cool 150 grand, so if you start saving now you might be in luck. But the trouble is this false hope is only treating a symptom of the problem but not the cause. As Romans 6.23 would say, the wages of sin is death, so death is the result. Human the human predicament goes deeper than its physical ailments. Since our earliest history, we have seized autonomy with the desire to rule ourselves. But we have found you can't be the boss when you don't build the company and you can't rule the earth when it's not yours to begin with. And John chapter 1, verse 3 clearly tells us who has this right to set the expectations for planet earth and to rule it. That person is Jesus. John 1, 3 says this, Through him, that is Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. It's pretty clear. If that's not clear enough, though, the Apostle Paul writes, and he was a famous early convert of the New Testament letters, he said this to the Colossian Christians, for in him, that's Jesus again, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, And for him, it's in Colossians 1.16. So both John and Paul put on record that everything we see and even the things we don't see were made by Jesus Christ and sadly as I've said since our earliest moments as humanity we've bucked against Jesus' right to govern. This affects all of us here and the result is a withdrawal of God's life-sustaining power, we see it in Genesis chapter 3 and the presence of his life-ending power sorry, life's a stunning power, the result of that is death. And Paul conveys this when writing a letter to the Roman church. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. It's a problem for all of us and death is a result. All this says that we as a collective have a huge problem, And it's a problem that permeates our being that no cryogenic deep freeze can fix. But there is a new hope, a resurrection hope we will discover. Because clearly this is not the full picture of our text in 1 Peter. Because this is the bad news, but Peter wouldn't have a cause to celebrate if it was all bad news. Ironically, his cause for celebration actually rests in the same person from whom we've attempted to snatch control, from Jesus. So, as we move back in the verse in 1 Peter 1.3, we see that the word resurrection is linked to the activity of Jesus. This is a mind-blowing concept, and it's presented in a single phrase here, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. According to Peter, our cryogenic deep freeze solution is 2,000 years behind the times. So, you can all put your 150 grand back in the bank now. Peter's writing, in chorus with everyone else, that writes in the New Testament, that the big news is that the one person humanity has shunned has returned to win us back by reversing the effects of our self-rule. This is the message of hope. This message rests on the bedrock of resurrection, of death transforming to life. It was so central that Paul writes this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Paul's saying that if the Christian hope is not grounded in this historical reality, the resurrection of Jesus, we should basically pack up and go home. We could put the fairy lights elsewhere, they'd be better served. Our activities here wouldn't be much different than, say, the life-saving extension society that Dr James Bedford hoped in. Or dare I say, at the country women's association. And Peter even stresses this again in his second letter. He says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty." That's in two Peter one sixteen. So the Christian hope has always rested on this historical event, and we trust those closest to the event who were transformed from that ragtag. Frightened bunch of disciples into an empire changing group of disciples of Jesus. And they changed the world with this same news. So we've seen the universal problem that humanity faces. We've seen its only solution. So, how does a person enjoy the benefits of this reversal of fortunes? Well, further inspection of 1 Peter 3 shows it comes from God, the reverser and restorer. It comes as a gift of new birth. And God has already given this gift to the first readers, since it's, it's actually addressed to God's elect, you find out in the first verse. But how did they come across it? Well, it says in 1 Peter 3 that God has given this gift and they received it like everyone else, through faith. And Paul confirms that in writing to the Ephesians, he says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, "...for by grace you've been saved, through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." So it's not by hiding in the cave and it's not by climbing the pole, it's not by deleting your social media. John puts it another way in his Gospel. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God, in John 1:12 and 13. So the new and living hope that Peter celebrates is found in being transformed into a new creature by the power of God. This is who you are if you've placed your trust in Jesus, believing in his name and what he's done for you. And it's only this gift of grace, this goodness of God that can bring about this transformation required to reverse sin's effects. So tonight, if your hope, trust and belief is in Jesus, you can look forward to the day when sin's entire effects are reversed. Because you can say with the Apostle Paul... Christ has indeed been risen from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty. So now we're more like Jason Bourne. We've discovered Christian identity, and like Bourne, we've discovered we didn't like our old identity, but we also have a better understanding of our mission going forward. we find out that our new mission rests on new values... Um, let me just. Sorry, we've got some tech issues here, which I'm going to solve because it will be for everyone's benefit. Okay, new values. There we go. So, part of the Christian's mission is to share this life-changing news, and we give this a big title, it's on your wall over there, evangelism. Evangelism is something we can do anywhere, it's just as important in the workplace as anywhere, but I would put to you tonight that evangelism is not just an activity do, we do, but it's actually something which flows from who we are, that identity. And values that are shaped by our new identity, actually form the foundation for our mission. So the idea of family values are probably pretty familiar to us because most of us have grown up in a family, very few of us were raised by wolves. Um, The things that you treasure and value most are likely inherited from your family. I don't mean great Aunt Susan's spoon collection. I'm talking about the pastimes that you cherish, the work that you see as most meaningful, your relationship with the environment, and your views on love, money, and leadership. So your family has played a huge role in ingraining these values so deeply into you. Some of the time you probably live them out without thinking about them much at all. Let me illustrate how this works. There was a young, there's now a young woman, who name's Callie Johnson. When she was just three years old, her single mum, Paula Johnson, discovered that Callie was not actually her biological child. Kelly's biological parents were Kevin and Whitney and the daughter they took home and raised was actually Paula's birth daughter, Rebecca. So tragically, on the same day, years later, at the University of Virginia Medical Centre in Charlottesville, when they discovered they'd switched the children shortly after their birth accidentally in June 1995, twist of fate, Kevin and Whitney, along with four other relatives, died in a shocking car crash on the same day. So sadly, that meant the couple died without knowing the mistake that had been made and that Rebecca would have to grow up without the couple that had become her adopted parents. Paula had always been open with Callie about not being her biological mother. Yet interestingly, Callie says Paula is more than just a mum to her. She calls her, she says, she's my best friend. She said this much later in an interview. She always has been, she went on to say. Now, I can honestly say that. She says her adoptive mum, Paula, who raised her, remains the single biggest person in her life. So here we see the love between a parent and child that overcomes their biological boundaries. Callie felt so nurtured and valued and cared for, she now considers Paula her best friend. I don't know whether my kids view me that way. Some days they do, it depends what they're getting through the drive through um, Callie's identities and values are so firmly grounded in her relationship with her adopted mum that she now sees herself so truly part of the family. And for us, as if we're listening tonight, we're Christians, Peter says our situation is quite similar. We have been switched at birth and in this case, we've been switched at second birth. So, according to 1 Peter 1, as a result of your new family identity, you take on new values. You begin to reflect God's character. For the original Christians, as we've mentioned, they were trying to do this in the face of intense opposition. So, the purpose of this letter was written to them to encourage them to continue living out their new identity. Don't be put off, don't be shaken. And we find further down that the reminder of the most important family value which God says to his people, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. That's what God calls us, calls his people to do. That is the core of their new value, coming from their new identity. And that changes our view on a whole lot of things. We see that testing times are not a pointless diversion from the real goals of life. Because trials bring maturity, we see that in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 there. It gives us inexpressible joy because we start to understand that the end result is our salvation of our souls, we see that in verses 8 and 9. And what it means to live like your Father then, is to be holy in all that we do. Christians reflect God with big picture living, I guess you could call it, We're not overly attached to temporary possessions, or shouldn't be. We're starting to learn to be. We're not overly attached to specific pastimes as our saviour, the thing that will rescue us and make our life fulfilling. We avoid empty lifestyles, in verse 18, because we live as foreigners, it says. We're not just motivated now, or we're growing to be not just motivated by comfortable living, collecting more possessions, retiring comfortably and then popping a lovely marble tombstone atop your grave when you're done. Or if you've got the money, you might have secured a spot in the deep freeze in Holbrook. So these are really, they're quite dramatic shifts in perspective and they can sound intimidating, like you're sitting here tonight and go, well, I kind of like comfortable living, I don't sleep outside when I've got the bed indoors. But the point of the letter is that the people originally were challenged. They... We're feeling conflict and opposition to this way of life and that's the point of the letter, to grow them and to grow us in our new identity. So in short, the view of ourself should be shifting entirely. It's quite different because our culture has a similar idea that when individuals are joined together, they form something greater, don't they? We see that around us today very much so, we're becoming very fractured in this idea that people join together and when they join the right group, they become something significant. But the struggle at the moment is we don't know which group we belong in. We're all wrestling with the idea of whether I'm in this group entirely, whether my groups overlap and which one's more significant. It opens a whole can of worms we don't know what to do with. But Peter's showing that for Christians, this tiresome task has already been done for you in a significant way. It's been done through the history-spanning project of God. And Peter gives us clues to this when he links the characteristics of the Old Testament to God's people who are united in Jesus. We see the language, if you were to jump through the chapter 2, we're just doing an overview here, so we'll make a few notes as we go. But in chapter 2, you'll see words like 2 verse 4, you'll see words like temple and priest and offering sacrifices. So this is not a new work, this is the great work of Jesus continuing from the very beginning, to build a people, a group of worshippers for himself, what could be called a spiritual house, as it's called here in the text. So we're encouraged, just like the early Christians, to see that our lives are important but they're also a small part of the great picture of God's redemption plan all through history. Often we can get very short-sighted and we can start to think about me and my blessings and I and you know the old song Oh how he loves you and me, we love that bit. Um, we get a bit short-sighted, we, we fail to see that we're a part of God's plan that started way back when with Abraham, that was promised in Genesis and we're part of that, that's what we're part of and we're heading towards a full-scale restoration, redemption in Jesus himself when he sets all things right at the end of time. So this is the viewpoint we should be taking as we're going into our life and into our workplace. Um, together we're being built together into something greater, a spiritual house and we know what our mission is, explained here for us tonight, to highlight God's greatness. And it should be noted that the people that God is building is even bigger than you here tonight at Ross Trevor. It's bigger than the church I come from or the church Craig comes from. We know this because it's written to a bunch of scattered people. This is written to people all over the world, you are now being built into something significant, a place of worship that lifts praise to God, a people for His glory, a chosen people it even says, a holy nation, those are big terms, that's you tonight if your faith is in Jesus Christ and that means our mission has changed, we now have a new mission and this purpose is, (coughs) pardon me, declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into light. We see that in chapter 2, verse 9. I'll read it for you, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Purpose, that you may declare the praises of him who called you. So this means we're now on mission And it also means that Christians shouldn't leave that identity at any door they enter, including the workplace door, the home door, whatever door you're going through. If you're in the outdoors, without doors, then you shouldn't be leaving this identity behind. This should now be infused and permeated and marinated. You should come to a full understanding of this. And that's the trap of our culture, it's to see our lives as separate boxes which we can move to at our convenience and leave those people in that box that's how we treat work sometimes, and that, that's good. Craig enjoys that aspect of our relationship. Um, and we tend to see them as spheres that don't connect. They're all different. There's no link between them. But when you understand your new identity, there's an infusing going on. I'm starting to desire a cup of tea, but it's all right. There's, there's a marinating... Oh, I shouldn't say that, we're getting hungry. But there's something going on here that, that gets to the core of our being that gets to the essence of who we are and it's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in God as the builder of this holy temple, this building that we are together, fit together. And what's interesting is Peter actually has a distinct focus on how exactly you sing these praises of God who's brought us into the light. There's a real theme in Peter, if you were to read through, and we'll highlight a few points of it just briefly, that li- how you live is very much part of how you live. Point to God, how you be his holy building. Um, so a couple of specific examples are in two verse twelve. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong things, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's a compelling life. Again in two fifteen it says the same thing. It's the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Beg pardon. Chapter 3, Peter gives a few more examples. He says in 3, 1 and 2, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. And that fits into the theme of 1 Peter, where it's, it's saying we should fit into the structures of society as best we can, as we're not here to overturn things from the top down, we're here things to be a grassroots movement of people that have changed inside that change everyone around us through infusion. So, Peter is giving these ideas that um, come through again and again, that the way that we are on mission, that we found our new mission, is the way we live. Be holy as I am holy, the text said. That's the calling, the primary calling. Everything fits under that. And that doesn't matter whether you're at work, whether you're at home, whether you're driving in peak hour and there's an idiot driving in front of you, it doesn't matter what the situation is, you're called to be holy, to be something other, something higher like God, filled with love and peace and joy. So again we see a Christian's practical expression of their identity in Jesus often meets opposition. It's a key theme, another key theme. And the reason is there's a war between kingdoms going on, isn't there? There's those that are fighting for the kingdom of self, and, and we fall in this category at times still, don't we? Where we will wrestle and, and fight and scratch and claw to get, get our way at times. And that's how most people are living. And then there's those that are called to live with the kingdom values, with the values of their Father to be holy. So that's why there's conflict. That's why these early Christians had conflict they had to deal with that was harsh. So, importantly, the way you live amidst that conflict is very important in the way that you sing the praises of the God who's called you. So, if evangelism then is not just talk, according to Peter, it's both talk and practice, how does this apply for us in the workplace? Well, I think this has got clear application to to our work arena A workplace relationship is often, as Craig pointed out earlier, a long-term relationship, unless you get fired. In my view, that means there are more similarities between sort of the spouse winning over their unconverted husband or wife by living alongside, showing those values of Christ. I think there's more in common with that in the workplace, potentially, than, say, Paul in the public square just calling out, because that was right for the moment. But at other times here, Peter's saying, at times you're in for the long haul. You can't get up and preach every time. If you've got an unsaved husband or wife, it's not fitting you should get up on the table and preach down the verse at them and um, that's that's going to do more harm than good. So Peter's saying there is a key element of the way you live as being part of that message. But also you'll notice as we dig in further that um, Peter doesn't stop there though and often we would like him to stop there. Peter also says to us that, in chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, it says, "...but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect." So always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. So it goes beyond the way we talk, sorry, the way we live and it eventuates in conversations because if we've got a a message, if we've got good news, at some point you have to communicate that. It's not often that someone will come and just act out the evening news for you or mime what's going on in their lives. Good news, bad news, any news requires communication at some point. And the message of the Gospel is good news by definition. It requires you to communicate at some point. And that's what Peter says too. There's going to come chances for you to explain why you're living the compelling lives you live. And I'll give you a couple of examples tonight of the difference between perhaps the way we're tempted to live and how we we can live on mission for God. With a focus on the workplace... So, there's no surprise this is how we're called to live because, of course, God's project of restoration is relational in nature. He's all about building a people. He's not just building a thing. The building is a metaphor. He's building people under Jesus Christ, a group called to him. And I think, in a way, unbalanced relationships in the workplace are a cause of great tension in the workplace. Christians can actually stand out as quite different, as hope bearers, when they are in relationships that are transformational and not transactional. And I would describe it this way, transactional relationships, they just focus on the give and the take, what have you done for me lately? And that can be quite prevalent on the job site or in the workplace, or even if you're a stay-at-home parent, very much so. So we start to see this person as how do they add value to my team or my project or what I'm doing or my recreation time. Whereas transformational relationships are very different. They focus on a message. They focus, I think, in the gospel case, on love. They're focused on people and the well-being of others. I think Barbara Johnson said it well. Never let a problem to be solved become more important than a person to be loved. So workplace can be a key area where we can do this differently, we can become more transformational in our relationships. And there's a cost involved to that, because it's perhaps breaking down those boxes of our culture that say, you only belong in my work box. You're only in the work sphere. When I go home, I leave you all behind. Perhaps you need to be inviting people into that sphere of recreation or family, sharing a meal with your family. Maybe you'll spend a Saturday and you'll move some furniture with them. Now there's cost involved there. So it views people differently. They're not just good for you at work and the birthday cake you know, does enough to communicate you don't dislike them. But it's about going further in a transformational relationship that reflects God and says, I care about all of you. Just like Jesus did when he cared for people, had compassion on them. He taught them, but then he had compassion and he was willing to feed them as well because he knew they were a whole person, a complete person and all of them needed him We should view our workmates in just the same way, just like Jesus did. We don't want to see their physical bodies as less important than their spirits. We want to live out transformational relationships in a way that prompts others to ask us for the reason, for the hope within us. We can tend to become unbalanced, can't we? That's a challenge for us. We can tend to the side of the coin that says, I'm just going to be all about living the compelling Christian life. That's my thing. That's what I do. So I'm going to go to work. Best Excel spreadsheet you've ever seen. No errors. Whatever it is, you know. But seriously, you're living for God in a way that you honour him. That's good. But we sort of leave. We like that side of the coin sometimes, depending on your personality. But then you come to the other side of the coin, and you go, I'm just going to tell everyone whenever I've the chance. So every time you come to the tea room at work, I'm just going to hit you up with, you know, John 3.16 yet again, or whatever it is that you do. I'm going to invite you to my church again. And we forget one side or the other of the coins, but Peter says, this is both. We don't want to tend towards one or the other. We need to have both together. That is the message of hope that we have. It's the message that should go deep down into us. the message of hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So I reckon if you're feeling guilty about not sharing your faith in the workplace or to your neighbours, maybe you're doing it wrong. I reckon if you view sharing faith as one of those things on the list you have to do this week, you might be doing it wrong because the good news of hope should bubble out of you like a sponge that's soaked up plenty of liquid. When squeezed, the same stuff should come out and when we're under pressure, just like these people were, That's what should happen. The message of hope should bubble out. It should be part of your core, part of who you are. So don't try and tack evangelism on anywhere, workplace, home, any scenario. Concentrate on your identity in Jesus Christ and your calling to be holy, as He is holy. I'm going to leave you with three questions tonight. In conclusion, have you experienced the new birth into living hope? to start with, or he's still back at square one with the problem we all face. Tonight, you can place faith in Jesus and what he has done, the way that he lived his perfect life before the Father, the way that he died a cruel death on our account for the sins of all of humanity and for you personally. And then he was validated and vindicated as worthy because he rose to life again to take his claim on the new kingdom. So that's a question for tonight, are you even in the building that God is fitting together? That's the first step. If you have been born again with this living hope, how deep do the family values go? Are you absorbing them? Are you soaking in them so that you might be infused and marinated and give off that aroma wherever you go? That leads to people asking you questions, how come you have hope? It's a question for us tonight. And the last one, if you have taken on these new family values, are you praying for opportunity, praying for the power of God to be ready in the moment? So when someone says, why so hopeful? You're ready to jump at the chance to explain the living hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's challenged you and encouraged you tonight. Thank you.